Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak, through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Leading up to chapter 8, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Rome in kind of a question of, since I'm so sinful, could I ever, ever hope to do anything good? It kind of leaves us with a bleak understanding of the plight of sinful man. And if you were able to be here Wednesday evening uh, or tuned in on Zoom, uh, we covered the last part of chapter 7. This is the passage where Paul goes through this dissertation of, I don't understand what I'm doing. I do the things that I don't want to do, and the things that I really want to do, I don't ever do them. And his question at the end was, who can deliver me from this? How can I get away from this so that I don't feel so defeated? And this is, as we understand the sinful flesh, as we understand a child of God still has, although the indwelling Holy Spirit still has the presence of the sinful nature. And so throughout our lives on this side of eternity, we're struggling with trying to do things for God and live for God. But as he said, sin is always there. It's present all the time. And he likened it to a body of death, he said in verse 24 of chapter 7. But then he resolves this by saying, answering, who shall deliver me? He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ. So with the mind, in verse 25 of chapter 7, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And then he explains what he's talking about in chapter 8. Because he's in Christ Jesus, there is now, therefore, no condemnation. Those who are in Christ, the end of verse 1 says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. If you have one of the more modern translations, you may not have that phrase at the end of verse 1. It is in verse 4, and I wasn't there when Paul wrote the letter to the church at Rome, so I don't know if he really did write that part in that verse, but he did write it in verse 4, which you understand there weren't verses, but we have numbered them. In verse 4 says the same thing, those who, at the end of it, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So it's an explanation of what he's talking about. Who are the ones in Christ Jesus? Well, it's the ones who 
who walk or are not living any longer in the flesh, but are after the Spirit. Those who are living and walking after the Spirit. And he even uh, delves into that even more. So he's saying, the child of God, although he has the sinful flesh already or always with him, he does not have to live his life with this frustration of the indwelling of the sinful flesh. Why? Because he has the indwelling of the Spirit of God. And because of the presence of the Spirit of God, he concludes that there's no condemnation. Before, he was talking about the condemnation of the sinful flesh, that I stand condemned. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. This is somebody who's just worn down with a weariness of trying to understand and grapple with how can I ever, in, in this sinful flesh, how can I ever hope to do anything for God? Because you feel condemned. He says, the one who is in Christ Jesus, however, there's no condemnation. Verse 2, he says, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So you've got this twofold thing going on here. You've got the law of God, also called the law of the spirit of life, battling with the law of sin and death. And so both of them are contrasting. And because he says, I have the indwelling spirit of life, which is found in Christ Jesus, I don't have to consider myself a slave any longer to the law of sin and death. He says, because what the law could not do, in verse 3, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Now, what's he talking about there? He understands through chapter 7 how sinful human flesh is. He also said in chapter 7 that the law was good. He considered that in verse 12 of chapter 7, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, and just, and good. So it's not a bad thing, but the law was not powerful enough to save anybody. So in verse 3 of chapter 8, he says the law could not do that because it was weak. Not because the law was bad, but the law was good, but the law couldn't do what I needed to be done because of my sinful flesh, the law was weak. Because man under the law of God, in his attempt to please God through the law, only finds out that there's no way he can do it. He attempts to keep all the points of the law. And this is the, this is the fallacy of mankind who believes I can please God on my own merit. I don't have to have anybody else. I can just be good. And so mankind develops some arbitrary rules. You know, if I do this and this and that, then I'll be okay with God. That is very common among men. And you're witnessing to people. You ask them, are you saved? Are you lost? Are you going to heaven? And more oftentimes than not, they will say, well, I haven't done anything really bad. It's always works-based. And the problem is when we come up with our own rules instead of the law of God, we might be able to keep up with our own rules. Because if, if one of my rules is too hard to keep, I just set that aside. Well, nobody can keep that anyway. And I just find the ones that I can keep. But the problem was with 
the child of God or with, with the children of Israel, when they're under the law, they're trying to keep the law, but their flesh is weak. There's no way they can do it. So he says in verse 3 again, the law could not do what I needed to be done. It could not bring me into a position where I was no longer condemned uh, before God because the law condemns me. It says this is wrong. And it also awakens in me the flesh. That is exactly why when we are aware of something that's wrong, that sinful flesh wants to do that very thing that we just became aware of that was wrong. And he said, that's what happened with me. Sin was awakened in me because the law said I could not do that. In my own attempt, without God to try to do that, I found that I couldn't. Sin, uh, the sin inside me, caused the flesh to be weak. And so in that, God sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, Jesus didn't have a sin nature, but He was a man. He really was a man. The Scripture tells us that He was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. So He had humankind. He was human. He didn't have a sin nature but he was tested in every way. And so God sent his own son in the likeness of that sinful flesh and also for sin. I like that. That's a consolation to me. He sent Jesus for sin because there was the presence of sin in the world and I stood condemned. Jesus came so that as I believe in him and he indwells me, I no longer have to consider myself condemned. He condemned sin in the flesh. Literally, the sin in the flesh. Human flesh. The body, it is sinful. It is sown in corruption. But God condemned that. His son died in our place. Why? That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. As Paul describes here, when he set his mind on the right thing, which was believing in Jesus as his personal Savior, he in that fulfilled the law. The law condemns mankind, and he understood that. The law condemned me, and it became fulfilled because I was no longer walking after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Verse 5, he says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. The word there says, do mind, that means to set your mind on. Now he's going to go right into uh, the next verse, to be carnally minded is death, and to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So he's separating the two. To be lost is to be carnally minded only. You're setting yourself, your mind on the things of the flesh. But to have the Spirit of God, you're setting yourself on the things of the Spirit. You want to do what's right. You, you uh, desire to do what's right. But we also need to understand that even though he says that to the church at Rome, to the church at Corinth, he says something a little bit different, addressing church members, addressing people who are saved. He actually said to them, I could not address you as somebody spiritual because you're carnally minded. And what did he mean by that? He said, because there's divisions all over. The church at Corinth was dividing themselves among preachers. Now, I'm glad that we don't have that problem today, but they had that in the first century. There, there's people, well, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm, I'm, of, I'm of Peter, you know. And some, well, <clears throat> I'm of Christ. 
You know, and then he says, is Christ divided? Because you all are dividing yourselves among each other, you're carnally minded. You're not thinking correctly. And so I've had to feed you like spiritual babies because you're just not grown up. So we have to understand that there is the lost person that is completely carnally minded. But because the saved person still has that sinful flesh, if he yields to the wrong nature, he can become carnally minded. He doesn't lose his salvation, but he can uh, become influenced way too much by his fleshly nature. So again, verse 5, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. That's what sets a lost person apart from a saved person. The saved person understands, I'm changed. I am a new creature. I must mind the things. I must set my mind to the things of the Spirit. Because carnally minded, that leads to death. Spiritually minded, that leads to life and peace. He says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. In other words here, it doesn't mean that well, I just don't want to submit to God because, you know, if I did, then I would be accountable to him. That's not what he means when he said is not subject to the law. Right here, it's actually in a passive uh, sense. It's not being submissive. The carnal mind is not being submissive to God because it can't be submissive to God. There's no way to please God apart from faith. There's no way to be in a right standing with God when a person is lost. A person is stuck in that carnal flesh. It is not being submissive to the law of God, and it cannot be. So, uh, verse uh, 8, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So what he's doing is developing why he understands that he is no longer condemned. And now, the church at Rome, I can imagine as reading this letter, they're looking at this and thinking, wow, you know, I've got this flesh nature. I've got, I've got the Lord living inside of me. And gee, am I saved? That's the reason that if you are sinning, doubts of salvation invariably come. I've probably shared with this to you maybe more than once. Uh, at church camp many years ago, uh, just about every year, there would be young people walking the aisles that I'd seen walk the aisles last year. And that sometimes happened more than once. And if they came to me and I remembered, I'd take them out of the tabernacle and I'd say, you know, there's a lot of times they say, well, I just need to be saved, Brother Doug. And I would say, now, didn't you come last year? You remember that when you came to me and we went over here and we prayed? I thought you were saved. How, why, why don't you feel saved now? Why don't you think you're saved? And almost every single time, that head would drop. You know what was happening? They were doing things that they knew they shouldn't be doing. That carnal flesh reared its ugly head. And when you begin to yield to that, that doubt comes in many times. And so... He says to them, but you are not in the flesh, if, uh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's a fact, folks. If you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you're not in the flesh. Amen. Not in the context that he's saying. 
Now, if any man has not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Now, do you see what he did there? He said the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. In other words, they're the same thing. And then further, he's talking about um, God the Spirit, Christ dwelling in you. Let's just read that and we'll back up a little bit. If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, verse 10, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him that, is, that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or make alive your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwells in you. So right away in all these verses, He talks about this. The Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ. If Christ is in you, if the Spirit of life is in you, if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus, if He is in you, God the Father, God the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, they're all the same. So to have the Spirit of God living in you is to have the Spirit of Christ living in you. The Spirit of God that uh, caused Jesus' resurrection is the same Spirit that is living inside of you that's going to cause you to, uh, your mortal bodies, to resurrect. That's what he's talking about. So if you have that Spirit, if you have been saved... If you have asked Jesus into your heart, however you want to say it, if you had confessed your sins and you've put your faith in Jesus, the Spirit of God takes up residence in your heart and He doesn't leave. Now, you may do things that you later are ashamed of, but He hasn't left. Not if He's there. He said, you're not in the flesh. You're in the Spirit. That's why he says in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. So, as Angela said the other night, this shows us that when we mess up today, there's always tomorrow. You can be forgiven don't ever let the devil make you think that that's it. I can't do any more. I mean, I, I, I messed up there. Now, we set things into motion, true. But there's always forgiveness because of the Spirit of Christ that's living in us. There is no condemnation. He said, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Not my righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. That's why we read just a moment ago in our scripture reading. Let's look at it again. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. If by one man's offense, death reigned by one, and that's Adam, much more, they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Yes, we inherited a sin nature from Adam. We did. We were born with a sin nature. And death has reigned because of that. But also because of one, Jesus Christ, we have this abundance of righteousness. Verse 18 in, in chapter 5, Therefore as by, one, or as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so by the righteousness of the one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. So on one hand, you had judgment. But on the other You've got this gift given to you, the justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. 
Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Why did God bring the law to the nation of Israel? To show them how much they needed to be saved. It was, as Galatians says, it was a schoolmaster to bring them to Jesus Christ. Couldn't save them, but it showed them they needed to be saved. And so he said, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's saying that all through here, there's no condemnation. Why? Not because I, I finally attained righteousness by my own merit. No, because I admitted that I couldn't do it. I came to the realization that there's no way in, in my sinful flesh that I can please God. But Jesus Christ was righteous. And when I take on His righteousness, when I, when I believe in Him, when He indwells me, that's how, how there can be no condemnation. Back in chapter 8, Verse 10, if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or make alive your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. That's the resurrection. Our resurrection is patterned after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I argued with somebody many years ago uh, because uh, in his... uh, his explanation, here's how he put it. Now listen, the re- resurrection means to stand again. That means it was standing at one time, and it's not anymore. But now it's going to stand again. That's resurrection. And I tried, tried to explain what this understanding of the resurrection is. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about it too. And he said, now wait a minute, wait a minute. Now you talk about people, you know, maybe they were cremated. Their ashes are spread out all over the ocean. And then that fish comes along and, and it eats part of that, whatever it was. And then I go fishing, I catch that fish, and I eat that fish. And in, in my little pinky right there, I got one little part of whatever that was of that person. You're telling me that God's going to resurrect that? And I said, he sure is. Amen. That's what resurrection means. Nothing is too difficult for God. It's going to come together. Now, listen, I don't know how much he needs, but he knows where it is. If he can take a man, I mean, take dust and create a man and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life, is anything too difficult for him to resurrect a body that was already living at one time? That seems easier if we're going to use God's standards. I mean, he breathed into this man that he had formed out of the dust. And then he made a woman out of part of what he took out of of him. It's not that difficult for God to resurrect a body that was once living. But it'll be changed. It'll be changed. And that's what he's talking about here. It's because the spirit of him, if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead, if he dwells in you, then he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also make your mortal bodies alive by his spirit that dwells in you. I mean... To me, it's pretty plain. He is able to do that. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, but not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. 
For if you live after the flesh, you'll die. But if you through the, de through the Spirit do mortify or put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. That's, just, that's the natural result of somebody who is carnally minded versus spiritually minded. Somebody who's lost serves the flesh. Death is the only thing that awaits that person. But the person in the Spirit puts down the deeds of the body. And that person, the result of that is living. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. They are the children of God. You have not received the spirit of bondage again unto fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Bondage was this bondage to sin. Now, we have to understand, salvation, there's at least three parts, okay? The third part hasn't happened yet. The first two, justification. When you're first saved, you are justified in the eyes of God. And daily, you are sanctified by the same Spirit of God. That is, you are set apart to serve God. We're debtors, not to the flesh, but to the Spirit. But the third part of it, that's glorification. That is the resurrection of a mortal body, but glorify, in a glorified state. And that is when we finally have the full completion of what salvation is. Listen, I'm glad, aren't you, that this isn't all there is to salvation? Because this life is difficult. I've still got this sin nature. And just like Paul, I want to be rid of it. But I'm not going to be rid of it until glorification. And this is the spirit of adoption. This is not the bondage, but we've received the spirit of adoption. And by this spirit of adoption, this is how we can cry, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is a Hebrew term, which is the equivalent to a term of endearment that we might call our own earthly fathers, like Daddy. That's literally what we're talking about. Now, that seems irreverent to address God that way, but that's what he means by Abba. It's not... It's not just some, yes, we're supposed to be reverent to God, but it's not just some distant Lord way out there and there's no compassion. We don't have that kind of relationship with God, not if we're saved. We cry, Abba. It is such a close bond with God the Father that we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be fearful of losing that salvation. Because the Spirit itself, he says, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. If he's dwelling in us, we've got that spirit. And so we are children of God because we have that spirit uh, of adoption. And if we're children, then we're heirs. We're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. And then he says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Yes, it's tough. Living the life of a child of God today is tough. You've heard me say it time and time again. This world is hostile towards Christianity and getting more and more so. I mean... Today, our world doesn't even know the difference between a man and a woman, or a boy and a girl. You know? It, you know, it just, it's beyond me how we've gotten this far, except when I understand the sin nature. And I said this Wednesday night, if it is hard for us, 
grappling with the presence of the sin nature and trying to do right before God, just imagine the person who truly is lost. He says, I feel as though I'm being taken uh, captive. But just imagine a lost person who really is captive and they don't even realize it. But he says, the sufferings of this present time The sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory which is going to be revealed in us. Man, that's such a consolation. The glory that God has um, awaiting us. And then the next few verses, I really like this passage too. You're going to see in verses 19 through um, 22, creature in the KJV, and creature, creature, and then creation in verse 22. These are the same word in the Greek. We're talking about the whole of creation. See, when Adam sinned, God, because of the presence of that sin, he cursed the world. This world is under a curse. Why do bad things happen? Because of the presence of sin. Maybe not your sin, but the presence of sin. That's why everything that is bad in this world, that's why it's happening, because of the presence of sin. That's why you people, when you're trying to grow a garden and things maybe not grow or they get thorns up or weeds or whatever, see, in the Garden of Eden, it wasn't like that before Adam and Eve messed up. He says in verse 19, the earnest expectation of the creature or creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now, that's neat. The manifestation of the sons of God. We are the children of God. We are the sons of God. Remember what I said, though. It, God's not through yet. We've got the justification. We are experiencing sanctification. But the glorification, that part of it, hasn't happened. So there is adoption, but he's not finished with that. And so right now the world is still under this curse. And the whole creation is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. Textbook definition of that word. One who assiduously and patiently waits. That means that you're ready. You're waiting. You're not just over there. Well, I guess it'll come sometime. No, you're, wet. you're ready. You're waiting for it. That's the idea. The whole creation is waiting for this manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity. That is the curse. And he says, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. So subject to vanity means uh, emptiness, you know, just futility. It's just, that's, I mean, yes, this world has such wonderful things to look at. And we can enjoy these things but it's nothing like it used to be. And it's nothing like it's going to be. And so that's why he's saying, the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly. The earth didn't say, God didn't say, okay, earth, I'm going to put you under a curse. Okay, that's fine. No, not willingly. It wasn't like that at all. But by reason of the one who did the subjection, the one who did it, but in hope. In other words, he wasn't going to leave it that way. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So, just as there's going to be a glorification for us, God will lift the curse that He placed on this earth. He'll do that. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. He's talking about all of creation, but specifically 
not people, because he includes people in the next, not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan. The word groan, pretty colorful word. It literally is a sigh. Just, and that's what he describes the whole earth under this curse. It's just, is this ever going to stop? Is this curse ever going to be lifted? So it's a personification of the creation itself, waiting for this curse to be lifted. And what are they, what are they waiting for? When's it going to happen? He said, we ourselves also, we who have the first fruits, there again is the, is the uh, idea of the justification, sanctification, and glorification. He says, um, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have the Spirit of God living in us. But that's the first fruits. That's not all there is. What are, what are we doing? We're also groaning within ourselves, waiting, same word as before, for the adoption. What does he mean? The redemption of our body. There again, the resurrection, the redemption. That is what shows and demonstrates in such a powerful way the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is us becoming a new creature. But not just that, but changing this mortal body into a glorified body, patterned after the glorification of Jesus Christ. That's what we're waiting for. We're groaning for it. It's a sigh. It's the same idea as in uh, chapter 7 when he says, I don't understand what I'm doing here. Verse 15 said, that which I do, I allow not. In other words, I don't know. Some translations say it this way. I don't understand what I'm doing. It's, it's this battle. I'm trying to do right. I've got to do right. I'm going to do. And it just, the more I try, the more difficult it becomes. We're groaning, waiting for the redemption of the body. For, verse 24, we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why does he yet hope for it? That's the idea there is you know something's in the future. He hasn't given you everything. That's why we call it a hope. It hasn't happened yet, but it will happen. It's going to happen. If we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. The word patience literally is endurance. To bear up under a load. Think of a, just a heavy uh, load on your shoulders. He says, we're, we're, just, we're waiting for it. We're waiting for that. We're enduring it. Likewise, the Spirit, I, I love this passage. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities. You see, He's already made the case that we're weak. You know, we know that. We live in sinful flesh. But because the Spirit of God lives inside of us, he says he helps our infirmities because we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself makes intercession for us, look at the word again, with groanings which cannot be uttered. Same word. So the creation sighs, wanting the curse to be lifted. We ourselves Sigh, we groan, wanting the curse to be lifted, wanting to be shed of this sinful flesh where everything truly is as wonderful as God says it's going to be. And so in those times, because of the weakness of our flesh, we don't even know what to pray for sometimes. But that's okay, 
Because the Spirit of God is indwelling us. And He knows exactly what those sighs mean. And in the sigh that we do, He sighs again. He groans, uh, interpreting that, those things that cannot be uttered. And isn't that wonderful? Because there's times, and I know I'm not the only one, but there's times when things are just falling apart. And you, you, you want to pray and you just, you don't know what to say. It's just like, <sighs> the Spirit of God says, got it. I got it. I understand it. There's, there's no lag times, what I'm trying to say. God knows exactly what you need. Because the Spirit of Christ is living inside of you. He knows exactly what you need and exactly what you need to pray for. Because he that searches the hearts knows what is, what is the mind of the Spirit because, uh, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. I just, I mean... How, how can it get any better than that? In those times, because of the weakness of my flesh, and I want to pray to God, and I don't even know how to put it in words. The Spirit of God that lives in me, who makes intercession, He knows the mind of God. And He's always there to interpret everything that I need. So that my prayers to God are not hindered by the fact that I just can't put two words together. He knows the mind of, of God and He knows our minds. And those groanings are interpreted just exactly the way they need to be interpreted. Things that cannot even be put into words. And here's a very popular verse. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Yes, God chose you. And as Brother Matt said a few weeks ago, who did he choose? He chose believers. That's who he chose. Why would he choose unbelievers? He chose believers. Because of this fact, and because there's no condemnation, who's going to condemn us? Yes, you have that sin nature. I've got that sin nature. But every time Satan wants to go before God the Father and says, see there, see there. All has to be done is see his heart, see her heart. I'm living inside of them. It's covered. Nothing can separate us from the love of God because of that. Verse 34, we're going to close with this uh, in the last of the chapter. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither life, or neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no condemnation. Not if you know the Lord 
as your Savior. But you know what? And I pray that everybody in this building is saved. But there may be some that aren't. If you don't know the Lord as your personal Savior, if you have never confessed your sins before God, trusted Jesus as your personal Savior, realized and admitted that when He died on that cross, He died for you. If you've never done that, you still stand condemned before God. And there's really no way to sugarcoat it, really. I mean, if you don't know the Lord as your Savior, you stand condemned. But it doesn't have to stay that way. You can, this very day, confess your sins before God and trust in Him as your personal Savior. And then... As easy as that. The Spirit of God indwells you. And now there's no condemnation. You got to let go of trying to control your own life. And trust the Lord. Because He alone can save you. Would you stand please? And as our musicians come, would you bow with me please? Lord, we thank you so much for this time that you've given us to be here today. We thank you for the consolation that is found in your word that because you live in us, that we don't have to worry about our sinful flesh. We, we don't stand condemned before you. Lord, we understand also that there may be those here today who have who just don't know you in that way. We pray, Lord, that as your Spirit leads, that there will be those who submit to your will. In whatever direction your Spirit leads, we pray that we would all follow. We ask that you forgive us in the times that we have failed you. In Jesus' name, amen.